The modern world is built on commodities, from the oil that fuels our cars to the metals that power our smartphones. We rarely stop to consider where they came from, but we should. Join me as we pull back the curtain on one of the most secretive business sectors there is, the world of commodity traders. This is High Grade. You think you're rich, uh, but in reality you're not rich. The resource curse theory takes a short-run phenomenon and projects it to a long-run outcome. The most important drivers of investment are the quality of the resource, the infrastructure that's available, and the governance environment. Industrial development accelerates the speed of social change. Creative destruction, people losing, people winning. What we need to fix is politics, not the resources. Welcome to High Grade and the Natural Resources Podcast. The Financial Times called it one of the best books of 2021. The World for Sale is a fascinating story of geopolitics, power brokering and corruption that will keep you at the edge of your seat. This is a true story, fit for a thriller. I'm here with Jack Farchi, one of the authors of the book. Jack, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Of all possible topics in the world of natural resources, why did you pick commodity trading? Well, we were both uh, reporters covering the world of natural resources and the commodities markets. Uh, and we noticed that there were these uh, these companies and individuals, the commodity traders, who seemed to be extremely important for commodity markets. Everyone was always talking about them as uh either the the hidden hand that had moved mm. this this market and caused the price to go one way or another or when we traveled to big commodity producing countries or consumers we discovered that the commodity traders uh were there and seemed to know everything and 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 have a very important role uh and and yet uh, we were both working at the financial times at that point and you know almost none of our colleagues or editors had even the first idea about these companies. I think probably mm -hmm. it's fair to say most of them didn't even know the names of the largest commodity traders. Uh, and then when we, when we went to try and learn more about them and research them, we found there was almost nothing written about them. You know, there mm -hmm. are a couple of books, but they were they were decades old, uh, and there was really nothing that could teach you about who the commodity traders were and what they did. And so we decided to write it ourselves. The book has been very well received, but it's not a book everyone in the street would buy, even though perhaps they should. Uh, how are the sales going? I think they're going uh, better, certainly, than, than we were expecting and our publishers are expecting. I think we've, we've had <laughs> several, several reprints since the beginning. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I guess that's, that's, that's what I can say about it. Uh, yeah, it's been, uh, we've, been, we've been pretty pleased with the with the feedback we've got both from people inside the commodity trading mm. world who know it well and also uh you know people who who might not know very much about it until they pick up our book uh but who are interested in how the world works and you know how how political decisions get made and how economies are formed we're going to be talking about the book in depth here um, and we want to give our listeners a flavor of it by reading a few passages here's the first one on transparency in the sector or rather, the lack thereof. For the most part, the commodity traders are privately owned companies with less obligations to disclose information about their activities than their publicly listed counterparts. Many have traditionally viewed their superior access to information as a competitive edge, 
and so have gone to great lengths to avoid giving out any information about themselves. As Ian Taylor, who died in 2020, said as he sat down with us for an interview for this book, we would prefer you not write it. As we could hear in this passage, it's a sector that is secretive by design. Despite this, your book introduces an enormous amount of new information. Did you at any point face resistance from the sector? Uh, yeah, I mean, we certainly faced some resistance. There were some people mm -hmm. who didn't want to talk to us. Uh, some people who did talk to us eventually, but only after a lot of persuasion. And some people who still didn't talk to us. I mean, there are certainly a number of people who we would have loved to have interviewed uh, who did not want to talk to us. Uh, and it's definitely the case that the commodity trading industry is a very secretive place. I mean, you know, mm. most of the companies that we're writing about are not public companies. They've guarded their information about how they do business and how they make their money, even how much money they make uh, mm. very closely over over their, their history, including in recent years. Um, and so that was a challenge. Uh, but we've been covering the, the natural resources industry, you know, between us for for probably 20 years mm. and so we know you know we have relationships with lots of people and we managed to you know work our network and try and persuade as many people as we could to speak to us and in addition we got lucky i think with um the the kind of the way that times have changed in recent years both for commodity trading and in general in terms of transparency so you know glencore ipo'd in 2011 it's a public company now so it publishes mm its uh its financials uh for the public uh and even those companies that don't you know several of them have uh sold bonds and so they've had to publish prospectuses uh and you've had you know a lot of the kind of uh the bits of the world where commodity traders are based or or their their um top companies are registered places like luxembourg and the netherlands and malta uh and cyprus have become relatively more accessible in terms of the information that you can get as a member of the public and how easy it is to get that information uh, in the last, I would say, five years or so. And so we were able to get quite a lot of information that we compiled what I think is for the first time, uh, the historical profits of the largest commodity traders, yeah. um, which shows that uh, I think uh, they were making more money in the 2000s, in the decade to 2011, they made more money than, than Apple or Goldman yeah. Sachs between them. Wow. But I think for a lot of people, it's a bit unclear how the commodity traders actually make their money. For me, it's useful to think about it like currency trading, uh, where they make the difference between the seller's price and the buyer's price. Is this a useful comparison, Jack? The difference with commodity trading is uh, commodities are physical mm. things. So if you're a commodity trader, it's not simply a question of uh of of managing you know uh an arbitrage on a screen you also need to handle a whole load of physical logistics and worry about whether your uh whether your agricultural commodity whether your cocoa is getting too wet or your uh alumina is getting has you know has been sitting around for too long and and, and is going to need to be processed again and you know, these all kind of considerations that uh, or hire a ship which is uh, not so easy in today's uh, market or, or or a spot on a ship. Um, mm. So there's a whole lot of logistical considerations that don't exist for currencies. Um, and that also affects how commodity traders trade. So they're, mm. they're finding arbitrages 
between different geographical locations, for example, you know, buying a commodity in one place and selling it in another or buying it and storing it uh, mm. and, and then selling it when the price is higher uh, and also transforming it, you know, taking a commodity in one form, uh, you know, copper ore, for example, and mm. putting it through a copper smelter and then mm. selling the copper metal. Um, so those are the kind of trade, the, the kind of core bread and butter business of a commodity trader that is a bit different, I think, from from trading currencies on a screen. Do the commodity traders own the ships or are they working with shipping companies to make the trade happen? Uh, both, I think, in mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the time. I mean, you know, often commodity traders uh, operate relatively uh, asset light, capital light businesses. So, you know, it's a... Uh, the the kind of the, the 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 fantasy image of a commodity trader, which I think is definitely not entirely true these days, but uh, is you know it's a few guys uh, sitting in a in an office in Switzerland somewhere with a phone line, uh, and that's all you really need because you can rent the ships and you can borrow the the money to trade with. Um, mm. So so certainly they're not necessarily owning huge flotillas of ships, but in some cases traders have done that and have made a play on the direction of the shipping markets, for example, as well as as well as the direction of a commodity market. You say this is a fantasy image of a commodity trader. What's a more accurate image these days then? Well, more and more commodity traders have invested in assets, uh, mm-hmm. you know, owning. I mean, you look at a company like Glencore, for example, which started out as Mark Rich and Co, uh, started out very much as that stereotypical uh, trading house. Uh, I think it was six guys uh left mark rich and co in 1974 and set up on their own with a with a little black book of contacts and some good relationships and started mm-hmm. trading these days glencore has invested in mines in warehouses uh it's you know one of the world's largest mining companies uh, so it's a very different beast and that's true on a lesser scale for most of its competitors as well uh, you know, you see lots of investments from commodity trading houses in uh, kind of logistics assets, so pipelines right. and ports and warehouses, things like that. Um, so it's definitely not the case, certainly for the biggest companies, that they're still just a few people in a in a room uh, with nothing more than a phone line and a, and a contacts book. I want to explore the trading houses' relationship to banks, and we're going to start by listening to another passage from the book. The phone call that almost killed Trafigura came on a summer's day in 2014. BNP Paribas was telephoning to inform the Trafigura boss that the bank no longer wanted to do business with him. The French lender was pulling about $2 billion in credit lines from Trafigura. Their relationship, forged over decades of trading commodities in every corner of the planet, was over. So the importance of bankers is clear, and it's because traders often buy the commodities before they can sell them. Um, you mentioned that Glencore, for example, now have other businesses, mines, etc. Is this diversification a step away from that dependency on the banks and towards being able to finance their own trading capacity? Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, I think it's a shift away from trading, frankly, partly mm-hmm. maybe because traders are very dependent on banks. And so if you have a situation where the banks suddenly don't want to lend to traders or don't want to lend to you, then you have a big problem. Um, Glencore experienced that in 2008 in the financial crisis when uh, when the credit crunch happened. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it was a private company and suddenly people started worrying about it. Banks were worrying about everything. And 
there was a genuine scare about uh, you know whether Glencore would continue to get credit from its banks. It did. It survived. No problems. Uh, but that was you know that was a scary moment, and I think Glencore at that point you know realised that it needed to diversify its funding sources, um, mm-hmm. and it's also a, a, a reflection of. Uh, a view about trading. Uh, I mean, Ivan Glassenberg, who's just retired as CEO of Glencore, uh, who was the person who drove them into investing in mines, uh, has been fairly explicit about his view that trading is getting more and more difficult. You know, trading relies on having better information, uh, knowing what's going on better than better than other people in the market, and as information gets more and more available and cheaper and cheaper and faster and faster that edge that a, a physical commodity trader has uh, yeah. becomes smaller. Uh, yeah. And so and so Glencore was investing in mines in part as a way of, you know, diversifying away from a, a business model that who knows uh, how long it was going to be able to continue delivering big profits. Although, frankly, the last couple of years have shown us that it certainly can still deliver big profits. Mm. Do we know how big the sector is? Do we have any numbers? Uh, yeah, we do. Uh, I mean, we probably don't have comprehensive numbers because, as I said before, uh, many of these companies are private uh, mm. and 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 in in some cases fairly secretive about what they do. But uh, I think we can, you know, we can give you some some big picture numbers. We put together uh, data on the the volumes traded by the four largest commodity trading houses, and mm. they're larger than the total exports of Japan, for example. Mm. I'm talking with Jack Farchi, one of the authors of The World for Sale, exposing the OPEC dealings of commodity traders, the companies and individuals that control the international flow of natural resources. They make the world go round, but at a cost. We're going to move on to the industry's role in global politics and economics. Here is another read from the book. In their commodity deals, the trader's motivation is always coldly financial. If a trade is legal and profitable, most commodity traders don't pause to consider whether the political ramifications are desirable. We deal with the physical flow of oil up until a point where we feel it's right or allowable, says Chris Bake of Vitrol. I don't think we sit back and pull out a cigar and say, let's make some history here. I wish we had time to do that. So the trader's motivation is always coldly financial. But can we say that the sector is good or bad? No, I think, uh, I mean, we tried quite hard uh, in the book uh, not to either characterize commodity traders as the, the world's great evil or to, or to hold them on a pedestal as uh, these wonderful individuals and companies because uh, nothing is ever black and white in, in the mm. world. And it's very clear that the world does need commodity traders. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to go to Colombia to, to, to go and pick up the coffee that, uh, that I like to drink in the morning. Uh, there are lots of companies that use 
copper or aluminium uh, or nickel and don't have the logistics and the network of contacts to go and source them from miners around the world or uh, or smelters. Uh, and so, so the world definitely needs commodity traders. If we didn't have commodity traders, uh, you know, global trade would be significantly uh, less uh, efficient, um, and probably there would be less of it, uh, much less of it, I suspect, if there were no commodity traders at all. Uh, on the other hand, you're absolutely right. You know, commodity traders have done, and you know, we 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 chart some of them in our book have done some pretty un. Uh, uh unlikable things uh, mm. over the course of the industry's history i mean you know one of the one of the 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 points that we make and the stories we tell is of apartheid south africa where there are a few commodity traders uh you know among them mark rich delivering oil to south africa despite a un embargo and uh it was pretty clear and indeed some of the top politicians of apartheid south africa said at the time uh that the the regime would not have survived without that oil and without mm. that, that uh, cooperation from commodity traders. So, you know, in that sense, I think that almost certainly had a fairly negative uh, effect uh, on on the history of South Africa. Uh, mm. You know, you, you probably would have had apartheid collapsing uh, significantly earlier than it did. Um, but but I wouldn't go. I wouldn't say that commodity traders are universally evil or that they're universally good and necessary. It's an, it, it's certainly a, it's a function that is that is needed, and and it's also uh, an industry that has a history of you know uh, doing some bad things. In 2011, something happened that changed the direction of the sector. Here's what you write in the book. It was a shift that some in the industry would later come to regret as the greater publicity of the public markets also meant greater awareness of the scale and significance of the commodity traders. The flotation of Glencore in May 2011 marked the point when, for investors, journalists, and governments, the traders became too big to ignore. So, Glencore launched an IPO, went public, and activities that had been taking place behind the curtains were suddenly in the open. How did that move change the industry, Jack? It made it uh, a lot more high profile, certainly. I mean, it mm. was about the time that we were trying to, to, to write more about commodity traders and we were not the only journalists who were suddenly finding that people were interested and, and suddenly it was possible to get information in a way that had not been true before. I think the main impact was really to raise the profile of the industry, both among the likes of us journalists but also among the, the, the people who use commodity traders, the, the miners, the farmers, uh, and on the other side of things, the manufacturing companies, the, mm. the big food and drinks companies that buy uh, and sell commodities to commodity traders. And suddenly, you know, from this industry that had been very secretive and no one had really known how much they were trading or how much money they were making, suddenly it was all laid out in black and white. And you could see that Glencore was making billions and billions of dollars a year, that this, you know, essentially group of a few dozen partners in mm. Glencore were between them making, you know, as much as five, six billion dollars in a year. And uh, and that made people wake up to how profitable the commodity trading industry was. And of course, to start asking the question, are they making the profits at our expense? Mm. Uh, and so that's been a bit of a sea change. You started to see many more producers of commodities like big oil producers uh, getting into trading in the last few years. 
some consumers as well, uh, and certainly much more scrutiny on the profits that the quality traders are, are making, including, I would say, from, from regulators uh, yeah. and how the quantity traders are doing business. And I think that's all kind of goes back to that uh, original moment when Glencore kind of brought the industry out of the shadows uh, mm. by doing an IPO. Mm. Did they know, did they understand what they were doing uh, at that time? I'm not sure they did entirely, no. Mm. I mean, I, I don't think they had so much choice. You know, we talked earlier about the, the, the kind of heart attack moment of 2008, and they realized that they needed to have different sources of funding and one source of funding uh you know is to is to have public equity uh and that would was very helpful in terms of in terms of financing the business and and no longer being at the at the whim of uh you know entirely of of banks uh, and also giving the partners of Glencore who'd made so much money over the 2000s a way to exit uh mm. and to sell their shares so I think it was a necessary step and so maybe they didn't spend too much time analyzing what the consequence would be mm -hmm. but uh I'm I'm not convinced that, that that they fully understood uh all of the all of the impacts that that would have in terms of raising the profile of the industry as a whole and making people suddenly pay attention to how how much money commodity traders were making and exactly how they were making that money. We're going to end this by looking into the future. Here's a final passage from the book. It's not just the banks or regulators, says Muriel Schwab, the chief financial officer at Gunvor. Society is putting more pressure towards sustainability, climate change, and ethical ways of doing business. Today, if you want to hire young talent, they don't want to work for a dirty company that drops dirty oil in some places. She says, I really think the younger generation will shape the industry and the industry will have to change. So not even commodity traders are immune to the increasing social pressure. What do you say, Jack? What does commodity trading of the future look like? Uh, I think it's a bit of an unknown. Uh, you know, commodity traders like to say that they only think a day or maybe a few weeks or, or months into the future. Uh, mm. So you know they're 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 by definition they're very flexible and adaptable, adaptable and agile, uh, and they will change with with the markets and 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 as things happen. Uh, they mm. certainly have been slow on diversity, and that's something that we've written about both in the book and uh, at Bloomberg. Uh, I do think that's beginning to change things a little bit. Uh, I don't. I mean. There is certainly pressure, more pressure uh, on commodity traders to be more diverse and to hire more women, more non-white people, etc. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, they still look very undiverse, most of them at the most senior levels. There are still, you know, their boardrooms are dominated by European and American mm. uh, men. Uh, but I think there's a change happening generationally, if nothing else, where, you know, they're hiring younger generations who might think differently about issues like the environment uh, and how companies should behave. Uh, so I think that is beginning to change at the margins, but, uh, but I think there's still a long way to, to go on that front. This has been a fascinating conversation. One final question. When will we see the movie come out on Netflix? Sadly, I don't think we have an answer to that question. We would like, we would, we would be very interested to see a movie come out on Netflix, but uh, <laughs> So far, we don't know. Thank you so much for joining High Grade.
And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. For a century, commodity traders have pulled the invisible strings moving natural resources around the world. Their dealings have been kept under the shadows. But commodity trading is now being forced into the light. The World for Sale is an eye-opening dive into one of the most secretive and powerful business sectors in the world. Hats off then to the authors, Jack Farchi and Javier Blas. This podcast was done with support from the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development through BGR. Make sure to subscribe to our channel on whichever podcast platform you are using. Until next time, so long. Thank you.